Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Father, we're, we're thankful to be here um, gathered as a congregation. Um, I thank you for every uh, member of our community that's here this morning, and I know that there are um, always some who cannot be here in person and who are joining us online, and so um, we thank you for those people as well. And for those that cannot be here this morning, we pray a blessing over them, um, uh, heal their ailments, uh, heal their sicknesses, um, or if it's not your will, then I pray that you'll be with them during their uh, downtime. Um, thank you for your word uh, that brings life I pray that I will be faithful in delivering it here this morning, and I pray that um, your spirit will be uh, moving inside us to convict us um, and to bring us joy and to um, uh, just bring us into your presence. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, I'm going to start with a little bit of statistics, take a read on um, uh, our nation right now. So George Barna, the living legend of uh, polls and cultural data. Um, he's got his Barna group, and in 2021, they did a study. Louder? Okay, is that better? No? All right, I'm going to try to speak louder. Uh, a poll of 5,000 adults uh, was performed in 2021, and the discovery was that um, the majority of Americans are Christians. So, hooray, we did it. Um, 69% of American adults identified as Christian. It's frankly not that surprising. Uh, but George Barna looked into the data, and he concluded that just 9% of the 69% actually hold to a true biblical worldview. So looking at their beliefs and what they report and comparing it to Scripture, 9%, which means actually about 6% of Americans hold to a true biblical worldview, and that's down from 17% in 2017. Give you some examples of uh, how he concluded that. 72% of self-professing Christians say that people are basically good, which flies in the face of the words of Christ who said, no one is good but God. 71% of self-identifying um, Christians consider feelings, experiences, and input from friends and family to be their most trusted source of moral guidance. Um, not scripture, that's, you know, God-breathed and is useful for training and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. Uh, no, the subjective whims of feelings and friends. But 52% say that there are no moral absolute truths anyway, so subjectivity is, is not a big deal. But it gets worse. Those who specifically identify as born-again Christians, 61% of those say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 62% deny the Trinity by saying that the Holy Spirit is not a real being. And only 44% say that their entrance to heaven would be based exclusively on Christ as Savior and their repentance from sin, which is basically the, the heart of being born again. So if you're like me, these stats are a little bit spooky, you know, um, and, uh, and it, it gave me an urgency to kind of take today's opportunity together uh, to discuss a distinction that for me has been very helpful these last couple of months and has been helpful, frankly, to the church for you know the last couple of centuries. It's summed up in what Pastor Trevor often says to us, which is, we are far more broken than we realize, yet at the same time, far more loved than we ever thought possible. 
But frankly, <clears throat> sometimes I think that the word broken might be a little too polite. We are far more sinful. We are far more wretched than we realize. But that makes the depth of the love that we receive all the sweeter. Um, if you have your Bible or if you have an app, go ahead and turn to Romans 5. We're going to be spending a lot of time in Romans today, so you can just sort of stay parked there. Um, if we go to any other passages from other books, we'll, we'll put the verses on the screen. I'm going to share something else in addition to these statistics that I find concerning. There's a, a popular evangelist um, slash ministry leader who is known for, among other things, um, a practice that he does of going out on the street and, and meeting with people, praying for ailments or illnesses or sicknesses that they think they have. And then he always tells them, you're so great. Jesus loves you so much and is so impressed by you. He never explains why Jesus' love matters. He never explains what Jesus' love looks like. He never explains how Jesus demonstrated his love. He specifically avoids words like repentance and sin. Um, if Miss Ruth could, okay, great. We've got the first verse up there. Let's go ahead and take a look at scripture and tell, see what it tells us about why God sent his son in a loving way. Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were ungodly sinners. We were enemies of God when he reconciled us by the blood of his son. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in another letter, to describe the state of people before they meet Christ or until they meet Christ, to say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked and were by nature children of wrath. We're not identified at that point with our intrinsic value as image bearers by nature. Instead, we're by nature children of wrath. So God showed his love for us because of his loveliness, not because of ours. This passage tells us that he was he was paying a fine. He was absorbing a debt. He was washing a stain. It was a transaction of legal exoneration for which the son died to demonstrate his love and to satisfy God's wrath. The cross reveals not our value, but how deep our sinfulness is that it required this big of a sacrifice. And even more importantly, it reveals God's abundant grace. <clears throat> the survey results um, that I mentioned and the popularity of ear-tickling preaching and ministry like what I mentioned to you, it means that the following statement I'm about to read would probably be uh, rather shocking for a large swath of, of Christian America. It was given by a 20th century gospel missionary named Paris Reedhead. I don't know much else about him, um, but I do agree with the statement entirely. He said this, <clears throat> If I had my way... I would declare a moratorium, in other words, a temporary pause, on the public preaching of the, quote, plan of salvation in America. Then I would call on everyone who has use of the airwaves and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the law of God, until sinners would cry out, 
what must we do to be saved? And then I would take them off into a corner and I would whisper the gospel to them. Such drastic action is needed, he goes on, because we've gospel-hardened a generation of sinners by telling them how to be saved without or before they understand why they need to be saved. And I would argue that the popular evangelist that I mentioned before, he is actively gospel-hardening a generation of sinners right now by telling them that God is proud of them and couldn't resist dying for such valuable, lovely creatures because it communicates from a man that they, they think represents God that they're doing just fine in God's eyes. Thank you very much. Now you compare the approach of that street evangelist with uh, one of my favorites, Ray Comfort. And if you were here the, the first Sunday that I preached at Olive Branch, you heard me take out for its first public spin, my household famous Ray Comfort impression. Um, if you've never seen him, he's about this tall. He's, no, he's, he's about five foot four. He's got this big bushy mustache. He's from New Zealand, so he's got this wild, memorable voice. And what he does is he takes a camera and a microphone. He walks the, the boardwalks up at Venice Beach, and he, uh, he engages with people in conversation and, and interviews. And if they agree to the interview, he starts it off by asking them questions. He says, um, do you consider yourself a good person? They say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Oh, well, you ever told a lie? Sure, I've told lies. How many lies have you told? Oh, thousands. Mm, okay. What do you call someone that tells lies? A liar. You ever stolen anything, even if it's small, even if it's a candy bar, maybe a song you downloaded that you didn't pay for? Yeah, okay, yeah, sure, I've taken things that don't belong to me. What do you call someone that steals things? A stealer? No, that's a football team. You call him a, a thief. <laughs> and he goes on, he says... Uh, have you ever used God's name as a cuss word? Yeah, I guess I've done that. That's called blasphemy. That's very serious. Have you ever looked at a woman who's not your wife and lusted after her? Uh, yeah, I guess I've done that too. Well, Jesus says that's adultery in the heart. That's also very serious. So he says, I'm not judging you, but by your own admission, you're a lying thief and a blasphemous adulterer at heart. He says, if, if God were to judge you on judgment day, would you be innocent or guilty? Guilty? Heaven or hell? Hell, I guess. Does that concern you? Yeah, I suppose it does. And he, he, what he does, as he properly says, he's not judging them. He's holding up the Ten Commandments, and he's having them look at it and examine their own lives in accordance with it. They find themselves wanting. And then he gives them the gospel. And the way that he delivers the gospel is very simple. It's very effective and powerful. He says, imagine you're standing before God on Judgment Day, and he's reading off your list of sins, and then he gives you the sentence, it's eternal damnation. And then Jesus walks in the courtroom and says, I'll pay that fine. Will you let me? And all you have to do is look to him and say yes. It's that simple. It's amazing watching the people that he steps through this stuff with, you know, how, how effective it is. Go ahead and flip back a couple chapters to Romans 3. And while you do, I'll ask Miss Ruth to put the next slide up. There's a term for what we've just described here. It's called the law-gospel distinction. It's basically taking into account uh, God's expectations for the world, his law. It's born out of his very nature, unattainable to us. And then distinguishing that law from, uh, from the good news of the work of Christ to satisfy God's requirements on our behalf. 
So here we have Romans 3, starting in verse 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, those are beautiful words, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifested. It's been made known. It's been made available apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In that passage, you hear law. In that passage, you hear gospel. You hear them not mixed, but they do appear together. They appear closely knit. And this is the law-gospel distinction. And that was all just my intro. So I'm going to try to get you out of here on time. But for the rest of our time together, what we're going to cover is what is law and what is not law? What is gospel and what is not gospel? And what is the right way to handle them together, separate but distinct? And we'll often pause to remind ourselves, why is this so important? So let's start that now. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is important because understanding this distinction will help to guard us from heaping law back on ourselves in a wrong way and condemning ourselves under a law that doesn't apply in that way. And yet, at the same time, it will humbly remind us of our constant lifelong need of the work of the gospel because we have an ongoing awareness of our depravity, of our shortcomings, and that makes the gospel have a refreshing effect on our souls. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no place on which men make a greater mistake than on the relations which exist between the law and the gospel. A certain class maintains that the law and gospel are mixed, but these men do not understand the truth and are false teachers. It's a strong word from Spurgeon, who's known and respected across you know, all aisles and denominations as a prince of preachers. So his, hold, his word holds merit. So with that, let's go ahead and examine and have a high view of law. What is law? Well, we, we talked about the Ten Commandments. That's what Ray Comfort uses. And that's a good summary of the, the moral law of God. Scripture gives us three functions for law, mirror, curb, and guide. And a mirror is where a person looks at God's holiness and righteousness, and what's reflected back at them is their own shortcomings, their own sinfulness in light of a perfect law. The curb effect is the second, the second function. It's the civil use of the law. We see this in place in, in you know, even secular societies where um, if murder is made illegal, it's going to happen less. So putting a law in place is going to curb evil to a certain extent. The third function is the only one that applies to believers alone, and that's the guide. And in, in a practical sense, it's the only one alone that applies to believers. In any of these, we have to grasp the gravity of the law, but none of them uh, perhaps is, is as useful or forceful in that regard as, as uh, the mirror function of the law. Um, if Ruth could put up, please, the next slide. The law says do. And then it brings conditional threats and promises based on the doing. But the obedience that's required by law is personal, entire, exact, 
and perpetual. P-E-E-P, like a peep, little Easter peep. Personal, entire, exact, perpetual. Deuteronomy 27.1, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. The whole commandment. Even Jesus, according to Luke, commented on the law, do this and live. We all know the story in Luke 10, 27 through 28, where the, the lawyer comes up and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <clears throat> Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and live. What's the this? The this is 100% your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, 100% of the time. If you want to go the do this and live route, it's 100%. <clears throat> um, if you left Romans, go ahead and head back there and turn now to chapter 7, if you would. There's not going to be any slides for this one. So the law demanding 100% peep obedience, personal, entire, exact, perpetual, means that the law rightly accuses each person and exposes his propensity to sin. This is the, the mirror use. The law reveals a man's sinfulness, his sin, and his frequency of failures. Romans 7 verse 5 says, For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And then skip ahead to verse 11. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Paul says, deceived me, and through it killed me. The law exposes mankind's natural bent towards pursuing sin, seizing opportunities to sin, even when he knows that it's going to be destructive to himself and to others around him. And then, Lord willing, the law convicts an unregenerate person, someone who has not been saved yet by Christ, who's still a proud violator of God's law, because if he is convicted... If he's not convicted, he remains dead in his sin, as we read from Paul. And the work of the law spells out his condemnation, that he is a child of wrath. It's a very dangerous place to be. So to sum it up, Martin Luther puts it this way, everything that proclaims something about our sin and God's wrath is a proclamation of the law. Now let's go ahead and examine some common mistakes regarding the law. This is a very important one. Number one, the law is not the way to be saved. Imagine if I took a selfie with my phone, and then I looked and I saw I had broccoli in my teeth, and then I started to pick the broccoli out of my teeth using my phone. It's not going to work. If the law shows you that you have broccoli in your soul, you can't pick the broccoli out with the law, right? No one, uh, the, the law shows us our sin, but it does not help us with our sin. In the law, there is no mercy. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. The law is do or die. The law provides no path of restitution. It gives no audience to repentance. Professor Michael Horton at Westminster Seminary, which is just up in Escondido, he puts it this way, the law condemns for violation, but it cannot exercise clemency to violators. It's not in the law's job description. In the same way, the law, the law can't save us, but the law also can't help us stay saved. Recall, the, the obedience to the law that's required is peep. It's personal, entire, exact, and perpetual. 
So if partial obedience couldn't save us in the first place, it certainly isn't going to help us to say, stay saved. It's not the purpose of the law. Jesus said, do this and live, where this is whole obedience your whole life. Edward Fisher, 17th century theologian, he puts it this way. The law says, thou art a sinner, and therefore thou shalt be damned. Well, that's it. Have a great Sunday. Uh, go ahead and get those donuts. No. But there is, there's, there's something interesting about that idea of letting that sort of thing hang in the air, percolate in someone's heart to think, this is serious, right? I did Young Life. Um, it's a Christian parachurch organization. It's a youth ministry for basically for kids that don't go to church. You do life with kids throughout the school year, and then the school year culminates with this big summer camp, these beautiful properties with actually surprisingly good camp food, um, really nice facilities. Uh, during the week at camp, it's a culmination leading up to the last couple of days. There's games, and there's you know rides, and there's Bible studies, and there's skits, and it's a lot of fun. The second to last night of Young Life Camp is the sin talk, the sin talk. And, the, and whoever is the, the preacher or the speaker that week, he basically gives the kids the first half of, the, of, of what we're talking about here, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And then they send them back to their cabins to brush their teeth and go to bed. And it's, and it's, a, it's a, a very quiet night. All the other nights are, you know, pillow fights and kids trying to sneak out. And that night, kids trudge back to their cabins. And then the next day, the gospel is presented and it washes their souls and it brings them restoration. There's also even the adult version of this at uh, a lot of denominations. They do this thing during Holy Week called the Tenebrae. I think that's how you say it. And basically, if you went to a denominational church growing up, you might remember there are these candles around the, the chapel. And during the course of either Holy Week or Good Friday, the pastor is reading through Jesus' time on the cross and the candles are being snuffed out. And it gets to Jesus' last words on the cross where he says, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he slams the Bible shut, and the last candle snuffed out, and everybody walks out quietly. I don't know what Saturday is like, but then Sunday morning, everybody comes back for you know Easter, and it's a celebration because the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus is presented, and it's very good news. So there's something about letting the law you know, have its effect. And I know that some of you, many of you here, uh, have already heard this and have already run to Jesus because you've acknowledged that he invites us and he says, come, come. And we recognize that his ability is alone the only way we can be saved from condemnation under the law. But for any here or any listening online who have never heard the law put so matter-of-factly, that in plain terms we are each a sinner deserving of God's wrath, I appreciate you hanging with me here. I know that these are some hard truths. Or there may be some among us here who have only ever heard this, have only ever heard law and condemnation and do better and work harder. And so I, you know, these impossible burdens laid upon you, I, I hope that this is a more simple, clean, accurate representation of what Scripture says about law and about sin. But this is important because if we don't get law right, then we won't get gospel right either. And so I hope that both groups... We'll see the good news that's about to come here um, in this law-gospel distinction. I hope it's refreshing to you. So with that, let's look at the gospel. We can start in Romans 1 where Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's what? How does he define the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. 
What does that mean? Well, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly because we never could. That's good news. Jesus paid our penalty that we deserve for breaking the law. That's good news too. Ruth, if you could put up, please, uh, 1 Corinthians 1. The gospel shows us the root of our salvation. Where law offered no audience to repentance, gospel offers full audience and full pardon. It responds with forgiveness in place of condemnation. That's more good news. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The gospel redeems. It saves. It promises. The gospel strengthens. The gospel atones, it washes away guilt, it removes condemnation, and as such, the gospel is a a motivation to live out of a thankful heart. Recall that Luther said of law, everything that proclaims something about sin and about God's wrath is a proclamation of the law. Well, he went on and said, on the other hand, the gospel is the kind of proclamation that points to and bestows nothing else than grace and forgiveness in Christ. Therefore, he goes on, those who are still afraid of punishments have not yet heard Christ. Now, it's true. If a person has not received the gospel, the law says you should be afraid of punishments, and you should beg, what must I do to be saved? And then the gospel says to you, just like Paul said to the suicidal prisoner guard, prison guard in Philippi, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Ruth, if you could put, please put up uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So speaking of Paul, in his preaching of the historical narrative of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see him make several important points that are gospel presentations. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, there it is, that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and Paul doesn't stop there, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And creativity takes courage. That's the end of the verse here. Let's look at this one over here. So <clears throat> this is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul preached, and it's the gospel to which we should compare the gospel that we believe in our hearts and that we share with others. So there's a couple of important questions that we can ask ourselves. First of all, is the gospel that we believe and preach good news? The gospel is not good news if it's anything like the holy-sounding but law-heaping medieval church mantra of God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within their power. So you hear those words? Do what lies within their power. That's not gospel. It's not Benjamin Franklin's famous, God helps those who help themselves. That's not gospel. The following is from a guy named Pastor Mike Abendroth. He's a Bible teacher on No Compromise Radio. I took a lot of the material that I have here today from a a law gospel presentation he did. And this particular aspect of it challenged me. It it challenged me to rethink uh, what I include in gospel. 
Because the gospel is promises and gifts, not conditions and demands, it is therefore not any of the following. Just pray the sinner's prayer. Accept Jesus into your heart. You hear those verbs? Have a relationship with God. Prove your salvation by speaking in tongues. Have a purpose-driven life. Get baptized. WWJD. Make Christ your Lord. Those are imperatives. Oop, it's gone. That was the gospel. Thank you. There it is. Not even the scriptures of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not gospel. Repent and believe. That's not even gospel. Do this and live. That's not gospel. These are responses. These are fruits of the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. We can learn that Paul was telling what he thought was of first importance. Do we consider the gospel of first importance? Is it the thing that we tell people first and foremost? We might share our testimony about God saving us or saving our marriage or healing us of an ailment or saving our career. That's evidence of the thing. Are we telling the thing? Because the thing is of first importance. That's the thing. And quickly, does our gospel include the resurrection? If Jesus was a good teacher and he died a martyr's death, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that the Father raised him from the dead. That brings us hope for us. Now, why did the Father raise him from the dead? Because Jesus alone obeyed God in peep style, perpetually, sorry, personally, entirely, exactly, perpetually. What else can the gospel not be? Well, we know the law can't keep you saved and the law can't save you. And that means that the gospel is not just step one of a two-step hybrid process for salvation. Jesus finished work. It does not just give us an opportunity to then earn our salvation by our own works after that. And that's important to point out because remember what the study, uh, the Barna study tells us that 56% of born-again Christians think that salvation is gained by more than the finished work of Christ. So it's important to remember the finished work of Christ. That's the gospel. <clears throat> Next, it's important for us to know that the gospel does not guarantee protection against sin's consequences in this life. We can still have crimes committed against us. We can still experience sin, pain, suffering in this life. We can still sin. We can rightly be put in jail if we commit a crime worthy of jail time. The gospel doesn't protect us from the consequences of sin in this life. And then for this next one, if you're still in Romans, go ahead and flip back to chapter 6. And here we find that the gospel is not a license to sin. Now, we know that police can sometimes sort of violate laws without quite breaking the law because of their, their authority and their position. They can, you know, go faster than a speeding bullet to catch somebody that's trying to go faster than them. Uh, they can hold somebody at gunpoint. They can, you know, retain somebody in handcuffs in their car. We can't do that, I don't think. Um, but that, it, that's not the case with, sinner, with, with Christians. Moral failure is still sin, and it's still serious, and it can still hurt. Romans 6, the first two verses, Paul asks, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God still hates sin, even while he delights in forgiving sinners who come to him. 
And as we'll see shortly, the believer's motivation for avoiding sin changes. Hopefully you're starting to see the interplay between the law-gospel distinction that they should not be separated, but they should be distinct. Spurgeon said about people, they'll never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. If we don't recognize how high God is, and if we don't recognize how low our sin has brought us, we won't know this chasm that lays between us. We won't be aware of the dangerous state we're in. We won't in desperation beg for a rescue. And therefore, the astounding work of Christ, the sweet sound of the gospel, will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. In the 16th century, this was going on. There was a blurring of the line so that those who would humbly come to church clergy asking for good news would be told, just try harder. Obey the new Moses. Listen to your priests. That was the gospel that they were given back then. And that's where the the Reformation is exactly when this law gospel distinction started to be formalized was because people needed it. And friends, there's a blurring of these lines happening still today in churches, but also in homes. Um, I've been blurring these lines myself, to be honest, in in my parenting most of all. I cleared this with my wife. She said it was okay for me to share uh, uh, my parenting um, mistakes with you all. So I have a six-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. Um, And so for the last eight years, I've been, you know, gleaning as much as I could from, namely from pastors and authors who are also parents themselves who can give me advice. Uh, And this, this is what I came up with. One pastor said, you need to heap the laws onto the kids now, as much law as you can give them, And then once they start walking rightly, you can start to peel away the laws and give them more freedoms. Okay. Another pastor said, guide your kids using the Proverbs. Teach them to memorize the Proverbs. Memorize the Proverbs along with them and help these kids to walk according to the Proverbs. Do what the Proverbs say to do. Avoid the things the Proverbs say to avoid. James Dobson, love him or hate him, he says a lot about parenting. He taught me, rein in your wild boy. My boy is very wild. He's strong-willed. And Dobson said, you need to rein him in or you will all suffer the consequences of a strong-willed child. So what did that look like for me? I would literally pin Max down to the floor while he was having a tantrum. I was trying to break his rebellious spirit like breaking a wild horse. All the while, I'm showing him my power and authority saying, you'll never win. (laughs) We would post up rules around our house. Um... Uh, laws and expectations and proclamations and family mottos to to try to you know shape these kids. We do merits and we do demerits. And for eight years, I struggled about corporal punishment. Do I spank? Do I not spank? This guy says you have to spank. This person says you'll kill your kids if you spank them. You know, we're just trying to do all the things, do the things, do the things. The point was, we tried to shape and mold them and all but beat them, all but beat them into submission. <laughs> None of the advice was wrong necessarily, but it was greatly out of order and it was greatly lacking. I'm still learning. I'm still applying what I'm learning. But every time I hear, every time I'm exposed to this law gospel distinction, this is what I hear as a dad. Dave, you've been given so much grace and his mercies are new every morning. Out of a thankful heart, give your children much grace. Dave, you've been forgiven of sin. Even if you don't acknowledge or apologize for every sin, I forgive each and every one. Forgive your kids. 
even when they don't apologize. Your Heavenly Father is on your side, Dave. He wants good things for you. He doesn't want you hurting yourself with bad choices. Make sure your kids know that you are on their side, that you're not the enemy. Don't pin them down and say you'll never win. Oops. We still use the curb function of the law in our house to try to maintain order and avoid chaos. But my motivation in parenting is different. It's shifted. I realize I act differently when I recall that I'm loved by my father. My kids should act differently when they know that they're loved by me. They know they're naughty. They know they're disobedient. I've told them a thousand times. They know that they're, you know, disrespectful. They know the law. They know that they break it. They don't need reminders. But if the gospel motivates me, if God's grace motivates me, my grace can motivate my kids. And even if it doesn't, at least I've modeled God's grace. I've modeled the Heavenly Father to them. When God disciplines me, he is tender. Therefore, the Father's ways motivate me to be tender with my own kids. The gospel's motivation is irresistible. Ruth, if you wouldn't mind moving to the Galatians 2 slide. <clears throat> Listen to how Spurgeon characterizes his shift in motivation. He says, when I thought God was hard, meaning cruel, tyrannical, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Hear from Paul in Galatians 2.20, where he acknowledges that as long as we're in this life, we're going to struggle against flesh. But he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. There's Paul's motivation. Paul, the great Pharisee, he was blameless as to righteousness under the law. He who above all others had reason for confidence in the flesh, that was his motivation. And so with us, we should be motivated not by guilt, but through grace by gratitude. This is why the law gospel distinction is important in the life of a believer. As I asked Ruth to put up the Galatians 4 verse, here's a sobering fact. God was and will forever remain our holy and righteous judge. That is true. But scripture is clear. He is now a satisfied judge. He's satisfied because his wrath against us was exacted upon Christ. And because the judge is perpetually satisfied through the son's perpetual holiness, the judge is now our perpetually loving father. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. <clears throat> there are expectations, yes, for any children in a household, including adopted children, but it's not expectations to stay adopted or to keep the last name. Children don't lose their, you know, DNA, uh, uh, you know, the, um, the things that tie them to their parents. They don't lose those things just if they don't meet a certain threshold of enough, enough doing good, enough abstaining from bad. Luther said, when I look to myself, I know I didn't do enough. 
But when I look at the Lord Jesus as my representative and substitute, I don't know how I could be lost. Jesus has done it all, and we benefit. Luther had a phrase, <clears throat> simul justus et peccator. Sounds like a fancy fish recipe. Um, it's Latin, and it basically means simultaneously justified and still a sinner. As long as we're traveling in these broken vessels, the distinction of law gospel is going to serve us. We have no reason to think that we're going to somehow, over the course of our life, reach something that looks like enough. We're not. We're not going to be enough. Even the great Paul the Apostle cried, I do what I shouldn't do. Uh, the things that I should do is the thing that I don't do. What a wretched man I am. How will I be delivered? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. I mentioned that the law gospel distinction was formalized uh, during the Reformation. There was a, a, an article written up called the Heidelberg Catechism. And a catechism is just, it's just a document of questions and answers to help people understand the, the doctrines of the faith. And the, the Heidelberg Catechism was primarily written by Ursinus. One of the answers to a question includes this bit. Although I have grievously sinned, grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, and am still prone always to all evil. Even still, God grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. My last year of high school, last couple years of high school, my family attended a church where there was no sin preached, no hell preached, no repentance preached, no law, no gospel. It was just, just ear-tickling, uh, feel-good, you know, uh, encouraging services. Um, it didn't do much for me, but years later, when I began to mature in the faith, the works of the Puritans were brought to my attention, and I was struck by their humility, their honesty, the way they honored God, and the way that they made God more and themselves less. And these great men of old, they emphasized, sorry, they, they empathized with and they shared my conviction of sin. And then through their writings, they gently ministered to me in that conviction, whispering the gospel. Jonathan Edwards is one of the more famous Puritans, and he had a, a sermon that's well known. You can tell by the title that it was spicy. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's well known because of its, its length. It's, you know, you think I'm talking long here. Um, but he had these vivid descriptions of the law and of the curse of the law. I'll give you a, a quick summary of uh, kind of the most important bits. Our natural lives are on a hellbound trajectory. And our own ability to save ourselves by the law is the same ability as a spider's web to catch a falling boulder. Picture that. But Jesus the Christ will wash us of our sins with his own blood so that our hearts will be filled and we will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I get it. I think as Christians, it's hard for us to stop and sit and think about our sin it's sobering. It's uncomfortable. We try to avoid thinking about sin too often, especially if we're believers. We avoid recon reconciling our salvation that we think we know we have 
but then we still have this willingness to engage in evil thinking and evil evil actions. And so it's scary and it makes us, you know, ponder and doubt our salvation. But this is where the distinction comes in and it serves us because the more acquainted with our depravity we become, the more bewildering his forgiveness should be. Don't fight it. The gospel says that you're saved if you believe. The, the gospel doesn't say that you're saved if you are so good that you can be confident of your salvation. That's not the point. Let me say that again. The gospel says you're saved if you believe, not if you are so good you can be confident that you're saved. To know the depth of our sin should not cause us to doubt our salvation. It should cause us to be amazed by it and deeply grateful for it. So whenever you're stuck in a rut, whenever you're stuck in sin, whenever you're aware of your sin and you're weeping over it, recite the gospel to yourself. It is a soothing truth. Luther said, Therefore those who are held captive, who are overwhelmed by sadness and in dire despair, the light of the gospel comes and says, Fear not, and comfort, comfort my people. Behold that one whom God has made to your redemption. There's a song by a group called Shane and Shane. It's not a group, it's a duo. One's named Shane and the other one is also named Shane. Um, incidentally, I also found this week that it was covered by this hardcore metal Christian band. Uh, so the song is usually kind of this da da da, and the hardcore metal version is. You, you can look it up if you want. The song is called Embracing Accusation. You'll find it by Shane and Shane and by something wolves, pack of wolves. I don't know. But I remember listening to this song as I lived in New York City. I was walking home to my Long Island City apartment. It was snowing, and I was listening to this song for the first time, and I. It, I didn't know it at the time. It was a presentation of the law gospel distinction in this song. And I found myself weeping over my sin during the first half of the song. And then after the, at the end of the song, I continued weeping, but not over my sin, over my gratitude for Christ saving me from my sin. I'm not going to sing it for you here, but I'm going to go ahead and read some of the lyrics. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight. If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. The devil's singing the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. Oh, the devil's singing over me, an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray, singing the first verse so conveniently over me, but he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. And the song fades out with the repetition of the phrase, he redeems us from the curse of the law. As I asked Miss Ruth to put the final slide up, <clears throat> Friends, here's what the law gospel distinction shows us. If and when we run and embrace the law's accusation against us, as the song is titled, Embracing Accusation, if we embrace that accusation and we run to Christ with it, 
God reaches into the depths of our hurting, broken, sinful souls. He removes the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, washes us perpetually in the cleansing blood of Jesus, our perfect Savior. And being washed, we are born again. Everlasting forgiveness of a satisfied judge. Everlasting love of a heavenly Father. Very, very good news. So I pray that this teaching edifies you, that it may spur you on toward love and good deeds. And like Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news, the good news of peace and salvation. And we may add, those who bring it completely, clearly, boldly, and joyfully. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it is, <clears throat> there is never a good time for us to ponder our sins, because though we are saved, we recognize that sin is still painful, and sin is still a present part of our life on this earth as we travel around in broken vessels on a fallen planet. And so we thank you, Lord, for the goodness of the truth of the gospel that Jesus saves, that he lived, that he died, and that he was resurrected, which means that we have hope in a resurrection as well. Thank you for that truth. I pray that it will wash over every member of this sweet congregation that as we walk through this week, we will be aware of the restoration you've given us, that we will be aware of the grace that you've shown us, and that it will bring us joy and peace. I pray safe travels for everybody home today, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.